Amen. We declare that, those words today. And uh, thank you, worship team. Great to have you with us this morning on this uh, Sunday. Welcome, friends. For those of you uh, visiting, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor. I'm the lead of New Life Fellowship Church here in Queens, New York City. And if you're joining us from YouTube or Facebook or newlife.nyc, it is a joy to have you with us. We are continuing today our series called Life Together, Being a Christ-Centered Community. And we are in a time in our world where, and specifically in our country, where conflict and division and animosity, it's having its way in our families, in our churches, in our individual lives. And so as I mentioned last week, this series has many points of application. Uh, First in mind for me is uh, I want us to be thinking as a congregation, New Life Fellowship Church, how do we love one another well? How do we share life together in a way that's Christ-honoring, in a way that's uh, healing? Uh, But this also has application for all other relationships uh, that we find ourselves in. Whether it's relationships at home between husband and wife or parent and child or roommates or friends or co-workers or other family members. Uh, This series, I think, has plenty of application, broad application across the board. Uh, Today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that can help us make sense of the conflicts we experience. And to be a community that honors Christ requires us to love one another well. And loving one another well requires that we work through our conflicts. That we work through our conflicts. That's what it means to love uh, another well. Now, today I'm going to squeeze a lot of things in here. So I think you're going to have to listen to this message sometime again this week. Uh, I want you to be taking notes and such and listening to the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit is speaking to you. I also want to let you know that because this is a multifaceted, multi-layered Uh, conversation and sermon I'm going to give. If you have any questions and you're wondering, but what about this or what about that, feel free to email me, uh, direct message me on social media, and I'll do my best to respond to any questions that you have because I know there are a lot of pressing questions that you're holding about, but what about this, what about that? Uh, I like to serve you along those lines, so feel free to email me or direct message me. Uh, Today we're looking at a passage of scripture in Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, of an encounter that Paul had with Peter, the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 11, hear the word of the Lord. It says, when Cephas, that is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ, Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
That's a lot in this passage here. I'm going to try to make it all make sense for us and how Paul uh, navigates through a very significant conflict. Let's pray. Let's open ourselves to the Spirit as we dive into this message today. Lord, thank you for the gift that you've given us to worship from wherever we are tuning in from. We believe that you can meet us wherever we're at, and so we open ourselves to you. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive all you have for us this day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite new life stories happened some 12 years ago when I joined staff. I had joined the staff, uh, and uh, a few months later, we were having a Good Friday service as we always do. And Pastor Pete, who was the senior pastor at the time, gave me the great honor and privilege to preach at our Good Friday services. And so I prepared the best that I could. I did my PowerPoints. I was ready to give a wonderful 12 to 15 minute reflection before we moved out to our contemplative centers around the building. And so before the service began, I went to the person who was advancing the PowerPoint slides for me to make sure what I said, I'm going to say this at this time, so make sure these images are up on the screen. The person said, all good, I'm with you. And so I began to preach uh, five minutes, ten minutes, and as I'm about to land the plane, as I'm about to end the sermon, I'm going to give a profound image that will make the whole sermon makes sense. I was ready to hear the collective gasp from the congregation as they saw this image. And so I go to the person in the back, go to that slide for me. But instead of an image showing up, there was a very bright blue screen. And they could not get the image up. At that point, I'm a bit disoriented, but I finish my sermon, and thank God we have two Good Friday services. And so if that one was messed up, there's another opportunity to redeem myself. And so between services, I go to the back of the room. I say, hey, I noticed that there was a problem in the back. Are we okay for this service? The person said, we are all good. Sorry about that. It won't happen again. I said, amen. I get up again. I preach five minutes, ten minutes. And as I'm about to end the sermon, I go, go to that slide again for me. And again, instead of the image coming up, there is a bright blue screen that shows up once again. And at this point, I'm more than just disoriented. I'm angry. I'm upset. Yes, I'm preaching about the good news of Christ, but I am upset as I'm doing it. At the end of the service, the person in the back says, sorry about that, Rich. And I say, no problem. It's all good. God is good. We helped a lot of people today. And I moved on. And as I'm walking away, I'm mumbling to myself, I can't believe this person. Who in the world, who will put that person there? Now, I was mad at that moment, not at the person who is advancing the slides. I was mad at our beloved Pastor Peter Roden. Yes, I was mad at Peter Roden. He knows his story. I've told him this before. Peter, who is a legend at New Life, was over uh, that department. And he put that person there. And of all the weekends to put someone who really did not have a full grasp of all of that there, he put that person there. So I was upset at Peter. A few days later, Peter would say, hey, Rich, how are you? And I would say, good, all good. And still in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, man, he sabotaged my sermon that day. Fast forward a couple of weeks. 
Pastor Pete Scazzaro comes up to me, our founding pastor and senior pastor at the time. And Pete asks a very curious question. He calls me in his office and he goes, Rich, is there anyone on staff that you don't like? <laughs> That's the classic Pete question. Is there anyone on staff you're having a hard time loving? Anyone on staff that you're having conflict with? And I'm thinking, these are some very curious questions. And my response was, no, I love everybody. Everybody's great. And he's going, no one you have a problem with? No one you have conflict with? And I thought, well, there was that Good Friday moment where I was upset that Peter Roden didn't put the right person to advance the slides for me. And so, yeah, I'm still pretty upset about that. And Pastor Pete goes, great, <laughs> which was a very interesting response. He just seemed a little too joyful about my displeasure and anger. And he says, I want you to participate in the Emotionally Healthy uh, Discipleship Conference that we're putting together. And what he would do at that moment is have Peter and I face-to-face -face in front of 300 people to address this issue that I was carrying. This is how we do things at New Life Fellowship Church. Now, if Pete didn't approach me at that time, I would have carried a lot of feelings about Peter Roden at that time. But I learned something as a 29-year-old pastor who had just gotten to New Life Fellowship at the time. And what I learned at that moment is this. If I'm going to mature in Christ, I'm going to need to learn how to deal with conflict. If I'm going to mature in Christ, I need to learn how to deal with conflict. And we need this message, especially in the day that we are in. Because there's a lot of conflict in our world. And if we're going to mature in Christ, honor Christ, and live in a way that heals the world, we must learn how to deal with conflict. Now, as we start this message here, I want to tell you that I know how difficult this conversation is and this issue is. I know what it's like to lose sleep because of a difficult conversation that I need to have. I know what it's like. To, uh, to carry anxiety because someone I love sees an issue different from how I see it. I know what it's like to get emails from people who are disappointed by something I said or something I didn't say and they want to have a conversation about it. I know what it's like to have to confront someone because of a bad judgment that they've made and I know what it's like to have someone confront me because of a bad decision that I made. And so I, I say this to say this is not easy. I feel this on a regular basis. And yet at the same time, we can move forward in a way that honors Christ and a way that heals the world. Now, when I talk about conflict, what I am talking about is, very simply, a serious disagreement regarding a meaningful situation. A serious disagreement regarding a meaningful situation. When I talk about conflict in this context today, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about remaining in dehumanizing situations. I'm not talking about persevering in relationships that are marked by a refusal to see others treated by, with dignity and respect. I'm not talking about those kind of issues. I'm talking about the normal, emotionally charged disagreements that we have, and there are many. Because to be human is to have conflicts, conflicts at work, 
conflicts at church, conflicts in our small groups, conflicts in our homes, conflicts with our parents, conflicts with our children, conflicts with our roommates. The list goes on and on and on. And all of this is the regular experience of being human. And we need not be surprised by this, but we're often surprised by it. And I'm often surprised by it. And so before we get into our text in Galatians 2, which is an important text for our day, I want to just map out for us what happens in relationships when conflict occurs. And I want you to hold on to these three stages because it's often the case that we get to stage one and stage two and we stop there and the cycle continues where we never get a handle on the conflicts that come our way. And so let me talk about the three stages of community life or relationships and then I'm going to take us into Galatians chapter 2. It's often the case that the first stage of community life or relationships is, is what I'm calling a heavenly stage. Stage one is often a heavenly stage. And by that I mean you, the early days of a new relationship, the early days of a new community, of a new church, of a new job is often marked by idealism. It's wonderful. It's hard to see the drawbacks. It's hard to see the sins of people. It's hard to see the limitations. Why? Because you just got there and everything seems wonderful. Everyone's on their best behavior, it seems. It seems great, exceptional, even angelic. This happens across the board. In dating relationships, you just met him, but you love him. Do you know his last name? No, but he opens the door for you. It's a heavenly stage. You just met her online, but you're going to marry her. Have you met her parents? Do you know anything about her? No, but everything seems great. It's the heavenly stage. We see this in relationships. We see this in the workplace. We see this in churches. There are some people, maybe you're watching online, who have been attending New Life online throughout this pandemic. Have you been to our church in Queens? Never. Have you actually have a conversation with people? Uh Uh-uh. But you see our congregation, you see our worship, you hear the preaching, you hear the stuff we're teaching, and you go, this is the best church out there. And I believe our church is filled with remarkable, beautiful, godly, generous, exceptional people. But stick around. (laughs) Stick around just a little bit. Because what often happens is this heavenly stage turns into the second stage when disappointment comes. And this next stage is what I'm calling a hellish stage. And certainly it might not be that dramatic, but just work with me here with the metaphors. The hellish stage, this is a a letdown period. You find out that the church has more mistakes and, and more people who are not as loving as you thought. You find out that your partner doesn't know how to be emotionally present with you when you're in distress. You find, you find out that your boyfriend or girlfriend would spend, rather would spend more time working than being with you. You find out that the pastor of New Life Fellowship, me, doesn't see everything the same way you do. I find out as the pastor of New Life Fellowship that you, the congregant, doesn't see everything the way I do. And it is at this stage where disappointment comes. At this stage when disillusionment disillusionment comes. At this stage where despairing comes. And it is at this stage where people tend to leave the community 
to search for an ideal one. It's at this stage where people want to leave the hellish conflicts and find themselves in more of a heavenly reality until they get to a new place. And the process and the cycle continues. It's at this stage when people often break up. It's at this stage where people quit their job. It's at this stage when people leave the church. And it's easy to think that leaving a church, leaving a family, leaving a job will get rid of the conflict. But here's the problem. Wherever you go, there you are. The challenge of conflict is easy to externalize it out there. But conflict must be dealt with within ourselves first. And so it's at this stage where disappointment comes in and leads to disconnection, which is why whenever I meet someone who's new to New Life Fellowship Church and they're coming from a different church, I want to know why they left. Because sooner or later, our church is going to disappoint you. Sooner or later, I'm going to disappoint you. And if we are not naming why we leave jobs, churches, relationships, and not have a full grasp of it, especially the unhealthy ways that we leave, we're simply going to have the problem go over and over again in a vicious cycle. The third phase here, and then I'm going to get into Galatians 2, is the holding together of tension stage, where you recognize that the church is neither heaven nor is it hell. It's full of mixture. It's full of people who are struggling and trying to make their way through life. It's full of people who are experienced trauma and have been formed by families who don't know how to resolve conflict or deal with some difficult realities of life. And we're all in the same boat. But it is the holding on of tensions. People are no longer angels, but neither are they devils. They are a mixture, and we're holding on to the tensions. Now, this is what we see in Galatians and what we see in the church, that the community is neither heaven nor hell, but it is a mixture, and we, we see as Paul and Peter diving into a particular delicate issue, and I think with lots of grace. I'm going to summarize the story a little bit, but I want to focus more on the processing of the content, uh, 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 of the, the, the process, rather. I'm going to talk about the content for a moment, but I'm going to focus more on the processing of it. Because what hurts relationships is not necessarily the content that we disagree on. What hurts relationships is the way we process these things. And so in Galatians 2, Paul recalls an encounter that he had with Peter. Peter and Paul are two of the most known disciples in the New Testament. They are pillars of the church. They are holy men of God. But holiness doesn't protect you from conflict. No matter how much you pray, no matter how much you read the Bible, no matter how much you fast... No matter how much you give, none of these things will insulate you and protect you from conflict. I used to think that conflict was a sign of immaturity, and sometimes it is. There's some people that wherever they go, there's conflict. But more often than not, conflict is simply a regular experience of humanity. It's not a sign of immaturity. It's a regular experience of humanity. And so Paul approaches Peter, 
And let me explain the situation. In verse 11, it says, when, when Peter, Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now, in the New Testament, there are many tensions between Jews and Gentiles. There were religious differences. There were cultural differences. But something happened in Jesus Christ. In Christ, the people were made right with God and with each other, not based on their culture, not based on their eating habits, not based on the law. They were made right with God and made right with one another because of faith in Christ. That's the message of the gospel here. But this was hard for many Jewish Christians because they believed in faith in Christ, but also holding on to the law. They believed in faith in Christ, yes, but also circumcision. Faith in Christ, yes, but having a particular diet. Faith in Christ, yes, but also observing particular holy days. It was Christ plus their cultural and religious laws. For example, it was hard for Jewish Christians to accept the eating habits of the Gentiles. And for some Jewish Christians, they believe if you ate that food, you were not right with God. But look what happened. One day, Peter was hanging around some Gentile Christians. And at the Gentile Christian parties, you ate the good stuff. <laughs> you didn't eat the same stuff that they ate at the Jewish Christian parties. At the Gentile parties, you had pork chops. At the Gentile parties, you had ribs. At the Gentile parties, you had Italian sausage. At the Gentile parties, you had bacon. You had lobster. You had shrimp. You had it all at the Gentile parties. And so Peter, knowing that no Jewish Christians were going to be around, pulls up a chair, puts on his lobster bib, and begins to eat all the foods that the Gentiles had. Would you like ribs? Peter's like, of course I want ribs. Do you want bacon? Of course I want some bacon. Do you want shrimp? Yes, I want some shrimp. Peter's eating the ribs. He's got barbecue sauce dripping down his chin. He is having a great time. But in the middle of his meal, he hears that some Jewish Christians walk in. And when they walk in, Peter gets nervous. He drops the BLT under the table. He rips the bib off. And he stands over the Gentile Christians and essentially says, what you're doing is not right. Now, he's doing it with barbecue sauce on his chin. Okay? So but he's pointing at them in condemnation, essentially saying, you guys are not accepted by God. And he led other people astray in the process. So Paul hears about this and says, this is hypocrisy. We are not saved by what we eat. We're saved by faith in Christ. And Peter is leading, who is, Peter has a lot of power. And he's leading these people astray. Essentially saying, you're not right with God. So Paul hears about this. And he addresses it. Now that's the context, that's the content of it. But I want to spend time talking about the process of it. How did Paul deal with this situation? The context of it is great for a different sermon. It's a powerful message. But I want to get to the process of it as we talk about dealing with 
conflict. What do we learn about conflict from this story? I want to just offer three things before us. Three things that apply to your marriage. Three things that apply in your workplace. Three things that apply to your relationships with your parents, your roommates, your friends, etc. Three lessons of conflict from Galatians chapter 2. First is this. The first lesson we learn is that conflict shouldn't surprise us. Conflict shouldn't surprise us. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that the Bible is filled with conflicts. Be encouraged that in the New Testament, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, people who are speaking in new languages, people who are healing the sick, those same Spirit-filled people are, have lives that are marked by conflict. In our passage today, there was conflict. And throughout the New Testament, there's conflict. So many different decisions that the church has to make. So many different disagreements that the church had before them. This was not the first conflict of Paul, and it wouldn't be the last. And this was not the first conflict of Peter, but it won't be the last. Conflict shouldn't surprise us. And I need to remind us of that because I'm often shocked when conflict comes. And I've been in so many conflicts. But this should not surprise us. This is the normal human and Christian experience. That's the first thing I want you to hold on to. The second thing I want you to hold on to is that conflict often usually requires confrontation. Conflict usually requires confrontation. Look at verse 11. In verse 11 it says, When Cephas came to Antioch, listen to these words, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now these are serious words, but these are important words. The word for some of us, confrontation, is scary. It's a word many of us want to avoid. It sounds aggressive. It sounds uh, dangerously oppositional. But by conflict, what I'm talking about here is that conflict requires FaceTime. Conflict requires FaceTime. And this is a very difficult thing for many, if not most, if not all of us. Some of us believe that we can pray conflict away. But I want to tell you today, you cannot pray conflict away. I don't care if it's, the name of Je- if it's in the name of Jesus. I don't care if you're praying all kinds of prayers. You cannot pray conflict away. We often spiritualize these things so much, thinking God will resolve all of this. And God's looking down and saying, I'm not, I'm not resolving this. You have to resolve this. We often think we can pray conflict away, but we cannot pray conflict away. It's important to hold that. It's also important to note That conflicts can't be solved on social media. Someone type amen in the chat, all right? Conflicts cannot be resolved on social media. Have you ever tried that? It does not work. Conflict requires FaceTime. And this is difficult for many reasons. Because to have FaceTime with someone is a very vulnerable position. It produces a lot of anxiety. And we've been formed so much by our culture, by our families, that make this very difficult. Many of us come from families 
that don't know how to navigate conflict. Think about how your family dealt with conflict growing up. What are the words that you can use to describe dealing with conflict? Whether it was shouting and screaming, and shouting and screaming is just a way of protecting us from vulnerable moments. Whether it was avoiding, whether it was leaving, how did your family deal with conflict? The way that your family dealt with conflict is often the way that we as well deal with conflict. Conflict differs from personality to personality. Conflict differs often by ethnic groups from time to time. A, a, A case can be made, generally speaking, that there are some ethnic groups that are more inclined to avoiding conflict. And this, I I think, might be true, but in my experience at New Life over 12 years, this is what I've learned in our very diverse congregation, that everyone has difficulty with conflict. Everyone has difficulty having hard conversations, whether it's Latinos, whether it's Asians, South Asians, East Asians, whether it is African Americans, white brothers and sisters, everyone has trouble dealing with conflict. I've seen it in older people. I've seen it in younger people. I've seen it in people of all kinds of professions and all levels of education. This is hard work. And I know what it's like to avoid conflict. I know what it's like to live in a way that says, don't rock the boat. Don't make anyone uncomfortable. You could be sure, when I preach on very difficult issues, I'm doing it on the inside. I'm not feeling all bold. And On the inside, there's something inside of me going, this is going to lead to some problems. This is going to lead to some problems. I never get used to the difficult conversations that need to be had, but we must press into them nonetheless. Paul has FaceTime with Peter. And the ways that conflict is resolved usually requires FaceTime. Now, there's some circumstances where you just need to move on. And, uh, and I'll try to get into that maybe uh, on social media this week and how do we discern the differences between how to move on and what, com- and what conversations we need to have. But generally speaking, it requires FaceTime. Now, instead of FaceTime, we often resort to four other kinds of ways of being and resolving conflict. And I just want to name them briefly so that the Holy Spirit can really do work in our souls. Instead of FaceTime, these are the ways that we often deal with conflict. Through silence, cutoff, triangulation, or attacking. And even as I'm preaching this, I want you to be listening to where is your go-to mode And what is the Holy Spirit trying to say to you this day? To love your neighbor well. To live in a way that honors Christ. To live in a way that heals relationships and heals the world around us. With silence, it's it's just a refusal to acknowledge the conflict. It's often the case that people in churches, in workplaces, in families, they are afraid to even speak up and for many different reasons. But silence is often a way that marks the way we address conflict. We don't. Or it's a matter of cutting, of cutting people off. Now, th- there are 
legitimate reasons to stop certain relationships, legitimate reasons to end the conversation and not pursue it. But I'm talking about the kind of cutoff that takes place without any attempt to resolve an issue, especially when it comes to people who know one another, who have history with one another. I honestly have no problem cutting people off on social media that I've never met. I mean, they they live in France, and they don't like something I said. I have zero desire to pursue a conversation with you when I've never met you. I don't know how you look. I don't know where you live. I don't know anything about you. And so there are legitimate reasons to say, I'm not going to continue this conversation. But cutoff is harmful and hurtful and dangerous when there's history. And you say, I'm not even going to resolve this. I'm just cutting you off from my life. There's no word about it. That's how we often, many of us, uh, are tempted to live. The third way is triangulation. And by, tri- by triangulation, this is what I'm saying. It is a normal human response to deal with conflict and tension by bringing in a third party. It's normal to bring in a third party. And so you and a friend are having a conflict. It's normal to say, can someone else help us to mediate, to, to, to be an objective perspective here? That is a normal way of bringing in another person. Those are healthy triangles, so to speak. And it's normal to bring someone else in. But, but to the degree that we bring someone else in so that we don't have to address the person that we have the conflict with, that's when it becomes dangerous. And this is what often happens in our lives. We talk to everyone else about the problem except the person with whom we have the problem with. And, and in the process of talking to the third person, we feel relief. We go, whoo, I'm glad I got that off my chest. But we still have not dealt with the source of our own angst. And the source of our own problem, but we triangle someone in there, pouring out our anxiety to them so we don't have to actually deal with the difficult conversations we have. Or we attack. And as I mentioned, attacking looks strong, but it's actually very weak. Because in attacking, we're protecting ourselves from being vulnerable. In attacking, we are in control. And attacking, we are setting the parameters. And it looks strong on the outside. It looks powerful, but it's actually very weak. Because you are trying to protect yourself from fear. And protect yourself and protect myself from the difficult conversations we must have. How do we resist this and embrace FaceTime? Well, it requires us. To stay in the moment. Now, this is really hard. And I just want to give language to this because this is not just like, oh, it's going to happen like that here. But I need to name certain things for us. There's a medical doctor named Kurt Thompson. He wrote a wonderful book called The Soul of Shame. And what he says is there is often an internal message whenever we are experiencing feelings of shame, uh, whether it's about something we did, a feeling about who we are, We have a hard time confessing these things about our shame because we believe that we do not have what it takes to tolerate the moment. I don't have what it takes to 
survive the moment of talking about shame, which is why so many people live addictive lives, why so many people live with all this prison. They don't believe they will survive the moment of confessing their shame. Now, I think the same applies with conflict. It's often the case that we don't enter into FaceTime conversations because there's a message inside of us that says, you're not going to survive. You're not going to be able to tolerate it. It will be too overwhelming for you. And I feel this often. As I mentioned, we have a big church. That means more people, more problems, okay? Uh, Puff Daddy said more money, more problems. More people, more problems. And, and so the more people, I'm used to lots of conversations that are very tense. And as the conversation is moving, as the day is moving closer, I often think, I'm not going to survive this. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to tolerate this. But time after time, I, I survive, <laughs> I'm still here. Is it easy? No. Is it hard? Yes. Did I survive? I'm still here. I'm still working through it. And that's my word of encouragement to you. It might feel like you're not going to be able to tolerate the anxiety and the fear. But by God's grace, by community, by encouragement, by people helping us process well, you can tolerate those difficult conversations. And so... The invitation for us is to recognize that, yes, conflict shouldn't surprise us. And it requires face time because by God's grace, you can survive it. You can tolerate it. But here's the third thing I want to mention for us. And as I said, you're probably going to have to listen to this again and be in conversations with people in your small group about this because there's a lot to unpack here. But... Life together, what does it mean to resolve and address our conflicts? It means thirdly this. Resolving conflict calls for healthy speech and humble listening. Healthy speech and humble listening. To address conflict in a way that honors Christ and heals the world and have us live with integrity requires us to have healthy speech and humble listening. Now, I just want to talk about humble speech, humble listening, and healthy speech, and then I'll close us here. But when I, when I talk about healthy speech, this is what I'm getting at. These are some of the words that describe healthy speech. We talk about this in emotionally healthy discipleship. Healthy speech requires speech that is clear, honest, respectful, and timely. Whenever there's conflict, I need to be clear within myself. What's What's at work in me? I need to be honest with the person that I'm having the conflict. I must be respectful, speaking the truth in love, with gentleness and, and respect. It needs to be timely, meaning not every day and every time is the appropriate moment. What is the right time to have a kind of unrushed, unhurried conversation? This is healthy speech, speech that is clear, Honest, respectful, and timely. But this also requires humble listening. To resolve our conflicts and address our conflicts requires us to listen humbly. And humility is about curiosity. It's listening in a way that you're truly curious and asking questions of clarity so that you can understand. 
It's attentiveness. I know what it's like to be in a conflict, and I'm already thinking about my rebuttal. I'm already thinking about my cross-examination. I'm already thinking about what I'm going to say, and I miss everything the person is saying in the process. But humble listening is attentive. I truly do want to hear your words. And it flows out of compassion. We're trying to love one another. And for our congregation, for all Christ followers, but for those of you who are part of New Life Fellowship Church, may our conflicts be marked by humble listening and healthy speech as we seek to resolve the particular conflicts that come our way. Will everything be solved if we do this? No. Will everyone agree? Nope. Will everyone be happy? Probably not. But will we be loving? The answer is yes. And that's what Christ calls us to be as a community. I want to close with this. I want to end with the word of the gospel and the story of Jesus. I mentioned early on that there are three stages of community. There's that heavenly stage, that kind of hellish stage, and the holding of tension stage. What we see in the Bible is a God who moves towards us through it all. At the beginning of the story of Scripture, it's a heavenly environment. It's paradise. There's no sin. They are naked and unashamed. They are experiencing communion with God. It's heavenly. It's the first stage. And then sin enters. Humanity takes matters into their own hands. Humanity wants to be God. And in the process, there's conflict between us and God. There's conflict between us and one another. Our lives are marked by shame. Our lives are marked by competition. Our lives are no longer marked by union and communion. There's conflict. But what do we see in the scriptures? We see a God who loves us enough to continue to draw near to us. We don't see a God attacking us. We don't see a God who's silent. We don't see a God who uh, tries to avoid us and cut us off. What we see is a God who moves towards us with grace and truth. We see a God in the Old Testament and in the fulfillment of God, in the coming of God in Jesus Christ, who loves us way too much not to confront us and loves us way too much not to console us. Here we have the good news. God loves you too much that he will, he loves you that he will confront you and say, these are the areas for repentance. These are the areas of healing that you need. I'm going to speak truthful words to you, but God does it in love. In the person of Jesus Christ, he comes, filled with grace and truth, confrontation and consolation. And in the process, in his grace, dies for our sins. A God who moves towards us. And if this God has moved towards us, even through our conflicts, even through our sin, we are to receive this love and then in turn, by the grace of God, live this out, bearing witness to the world that there is another way of being human. There's another way of resolving our conflicts. There's a way that honors Christ and heals our world. Here's my question for you. Who do you have conflict with today? 
what's the mode that you typically go into? What's the Holy Spirit inviting you in today? May God give us grace and may our congregation be a sign of what's to come, a sign of loving union, a sign of truth and grace, a sign of confrontation and consolation that we're holding all these things together. And in that process, may healing flow through our congregation and flow out to our city and to the world around us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the grace that you've given us. And there's so much in this message. And we need your help to be formed in the way of Jesus. So teach us, lead us, give us grace. Help us to name the ways that we typically live that are inconsistent with the way of your kingdom. And little by little, Lord, may we address the conflicts we have with greater maturity, with greater love, with greater truth. And may we be a presence and source of healing in the world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Whew, that's a lot right there. As we close our message here, as I mentioned, there's a lot that I just unpacked. And I'll probably be going to some more of it next week. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to email me, like I said, or direct message me. And I'll do my best to respond because I know there's a lot to unpack in a sermon like this here. But as we close, there's an opportunity for you to be in conversation. At the end of our service here, we have our lobby. Uh, there'll be a conversation that'll be had in that space there that you can already get some of your questions out. And so you can click on that virtual lobby link to have a 30-minute conversation or so on all that I just preached about. There's also a prayer room. And uh, if you... Maybe you're dealing with a lot of anxiety, difficult conversations. You just need someone to pray for you. We want to pray for you as well. So click on that link there. Also, I want to say, some of you are probably watching. You've never said yes to Jesus Christ. But you're hearing about a God who loves you with an everlasting love. A God who moves towards you. Yes, in confrontation, but in consolation. A God who offers mercy and forgiveness. And you're saying, I want a relationship with that God. I want to follow this God. We want to help you. If you have questions about faith, or if you're saying, I want to follow Christ, I just don't know what to do next, you can just text yes to Jesus to this number. And one of our pastors would love to follow up with you. Now, before I bless you, I mentioned, uh, Pastor Kate mentioned earlier today that we're going to have watch parties for the next two weeks. These are great opportunities to, be, to see other new lifers on the screen. So it's not just you in your home, you on your phone. You're able to have a more communal experience in worship. And we'd love for you to be a part of that. You just need to register ahead of time on our website to do that. But uh, I'd love for you to be gathering in this way. So the more the merrier. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. 
we live in a world that's marked with extreme conflict, extreme division, with people who often hurt more than heal. But we have an opportunity to be the healing presence of Jesus in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, wherever we go. And so these words of blessing, may they be words of empowerment, impartation of the Spirit to give you what you need to address some of the difficult matters that we face. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and fill you with peace. May you walk out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit with all the grace and wisdom you need to work for the healing of your relationships, the healing of community, the healing of the world in a way that honors Christ and heals the people around you. May God give you grace for this, to have face time with, your, with the conflicts. May God give you discernment, wisdom, and grace. I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the wise name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you all. See you sometime this week or next Sunday.